Peter 2. So uh, just an announcement that next week we are covering 2 Peter 3. We will have 30 minutes devoted to 2 Peter 3, and then the second half of the lesson, uh, the time rather, will be um, given over to uh, Chuck Williams because he will speak to the congregation um, about a mission, uh, church opportunity, church planting that he is involved in and that the church is supporting. So he, um, I wanted to give him some time to speak about what that, um, that church is going to look like and to field any questions you guys might have. So that'll be next week during the ABF hour. So we'll have just a half hour on Second Peter 3, and then Reverend uh, Chuck Williams will take the other half. Before we hear Second Peter 2 read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and wonderful God, we thank you for this word. Pray that you would use this word, Lord, to wake us up or to keep us alert to dangerous doctrines and to see the truth in contradistinction to the doctrines of demons. In Christ's name we pray, amen. See here is 2 Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, or as angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaken the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They escape, or they promise 
them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the, un, from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. It's, a, it's an intense chapter, isn't it? And trust that you noticed a lot of parallels with that chapter and Jude, the meat of, of Jude. So as you see in the outline, we are on uh, the section that says, Beware of False Prophets. So I've structured this lesson around three inevitables. There is the inevitability of falsehood in the church from without and from within. There is inevitable judgment on false teachers. And then there's also inevitable rescue or deliverance of the godly. So we see in just the first verse or two, the inevitable presence of falsehood. Again in verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So as it was among the Old Testament people, so it will be among New Testament people. You can count on the presence of falsehood. Doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter when you are, if Christ has not come again, then there will be falsehood. There will be false teachers. There will be truth, of course, but there will also be error, mixture. And this presence of the false prophets, false teachers, comes with a punch. There are several descriptions of this presence, just from verse 1, that I've pulled out here. The first is that it is a subtle presence who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. False teachers don't come to you in the church and say, hey, by the way, just so you know, I'm a false teacher. Uh, I love my false teaching. And, you know, you should just accept it. They are subtly, secretly bringing in. Now, of course, they don't believe this to be false teaching in most cases. They believe it to be uh, true. They think that they are spouting out the truth. They think that they have the truth and the others do not. Somehow, uh, the, the church is uh, nearsighted or it is not seeing the whole truth and so these teachers, but the Bible calls them false teachers, these teachers, these prophets, these false prophets, they believe that they are bringing the truth, even though in reality they are um, secretly bringing in destructive heresies. So that's the second thing here. It's a scripture-denying presence. It's a heresy. They are bringing in heresies. So what are heresies? Are they just any uh, wrong-headed thinking? No. If that were the case, then... Every one of us would be branded a heretic. So heresies are what? They're lies about the truth of God. Where are you going to? Did I cut you? And his work? Okay. Yes. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. They strike the vitals of the gospel. They, they would change the gospel. They would change the essence of Christianity, of the Word of God, if believed, if true. So, uh, I mean, there are countless heresies. There are, though, many that really would just radically change the entirety of the gospel, uh, if untrue. So, can we think of any Scripture-denying heresies Modalism, okay, so if there was only one person in the Godhead, that is a heresy. We call that a Trinitarian heresy. It's a heresy that strikes at the vitals of the being of God. He is triune. To say otherwise is to be heretical. Okay, so this heresy uh, is saying that we need to have more than one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus and his mother. Good. Denying the resurrection is heresy, and denying the resurrection in bodily form, right? Because some will say, well, Jesus rose from the dead spiritually, and say, no, not too fast. I'm not going to fall for that one. Okay, good. So any kind of works righteousness? How about on the front end of Christ's humiliation? What was the first thing that happened in his humiliation? The virgin birth, okay. So to deny the virgin birth would be heretical. To deny his very incarnation would be heretical. So these are all... Um, destructive heresies, uh, to deny the deity of God would be a, a heresy. To deny the humanity of Jesus would be uh, heretical as well. To say that Jesus is not truly God and truly man, to say he's only man or he's, he's only God would be heretical as well. We need to have that hypostatic union, don't we? We need to have the one person in two natures. Universalism, yes. Everyone saved. That would be heretical. No hell, a denial of hell would be heretical. Yes. Yeah, I would lump that under universalism. Mm -hmm. So there are many heresies that, if believed, deny the Word of God, deny Scripture. And these heresies... Also, if believed, don't just deny Scripture, but they destroy souls. They are destructive heresies, so they're, they leave ruin in their wake. These aren't just innocent, you know, neutral, false beliefs. They have an effect, a dangerous effect, on those who believe them. That's why the false teachers need to be stopped. If there was no dangerous effect, then say, well, don't worry about it. You can believe the incarnation or not. You can believe the resurrection or not. It doesn't really matter. Your soul's not at stake. doesn't matter. A Savior-denying presence, even denying the master who bought them. So these false prophets, these false teachers, do not affirm the Savior. They do not affirm God. Now that verse, uh, that, that line, even denying the master who bought them, could be understood 
in one of three ways. The first would be out of, uh, out of accord with the system of religion that we believe Scripture teaches. The, so this first way of understanding, even denying the master who bought them, would be to say that there were people for whom Christ died, and then they end up denying him, and then end up losing salvation. That's how some have understood it. That's actually a proof text that an Arminian might appeal to. Say, well, look, there you have, somebody can lose his salvation. He's accepted the Savior, but now he's denied the Savior who bought him. The language of purchase, this word actually can be used. It's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's been used to refer to God the Father creating so it could be bought in the sense of ownership, so it's a uh, creation. So these false teachers have denied the creator who possesses them, who, who owns them, who is their Lord. Another way of understanding this is to say that these false prophets, these false teachers, are in the covenant outwardly, and their actions are demonstrating that they're actually denying the one who is their Um, externally, their covenant head. So this would be similar to those who uh, make a profession of faith, but who end up uh, committing apostasy, or who end up demonstrating that they actually weren't uh, of the Lord. So they were with the people of God, but they reject the Lord of salvation. And there's language similar as well to uh, to verse 1. In verse 20, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. That does seem to jive well with verse 1 and this interpretation, which I think is the most likely of the three, that uh, these are people who are only outwardly in the covenant community and not truly inwardly saved. Something you see uh, elsewhere um, in Hebrews 6 and First John 2 and other places. It's also a self-destroying presence. So not only does, do these destructive heresies have an effect on those who might um, hear them and believe them, but also on those who are propounding them, those who are advocating them. If you believe these heresies, you are destroying your own self. You are leading yourself to destruction. J.I. Packer has uh, said, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a whole lie. A half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a whole lie. We want the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that's why we can see some, uh, we can see the danger, we see the appearance of light in dark, uh, dark beliefs. These are subtle. And we already, last week, I believe, identified several beliefs that had an appearance of light, but really were, uh, there's a mixture of, of error. So knowing that false teachers will be among the church, what is our duty? 
to discern and what was that? Good. Discern what we hear, what we read in accordance with God's will. So we are to test spirits. We hear what someone is saying, we read what someone is writing, and we, like good Bereans, study the scriptures to see if these things are so. Okay? And in order to know if these things are so, we, again, must know the scriptures. So we try to, um, well, we, uh, we daily enjoy the Word of God. We daily read the Word of God. We daily reflect on the truth of the Word of God, so that when error does pop up, we say, oh, well, that's, I just read in Deuteronomy that, that that's not the case. This is clearly an error. We must be on our guard, be watchful as we read the Scriptures. Of course, we can be in godly conversation with people who We've had many years reading the Bible. We can talk with them, say, well, I'm having trouble understanding this passage. You must talk about it, let's have a Bible study. And that's what men do, that's what women do, that's what teens do. Read the Bible, work with others to figure out, uh, to identify what it means. And of course, when error comes up, we can combat that error with truth. If someone is promoting a position that you know is contrary to Scripture, you can kindly say, as it is a kindness, that's actually not what the Bible says. I know Jesus did rise from the dead. How do you know? Well, it says so in the Scriptures. And there, you, and there you're off on a great conversation. Christ said that we, his sheep, would know him by his voice. What that also means, then, is we must listen to his voice. We must read his voice on the pages of Scripture. And so, and this might be a little difficult to, uh, to swallow, but some people's deception is actually self-inflicted. You know, some people's deception is because they're not reading their Bibles. They're not availing themselves of the very means of grace so then when error comes up, they don't know whether it's true or, or wrong. Maybe they, uh, they hear from uh, a teacher they, 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 um, they love and, uh, are for the most part, trustworthy resource, but they're not reading their own Bible, so they don't know what is right from wrong, truth from error. I think a lot of people who are caught up in the health and wealth gospel don't read their Bibles well. And there's just thousands of people who receive teaching from all these teachers. And if they studied a little more, the Bible, or a lot more, they would probably be able to discern that what is being fed them is actually um, darkness and not, not light. So, again, the call for us is to know our Bibles, know them well. Know the voice of our Good Shepherd well. So we know that the falsehood will always be with us until Christ returns. It's not something we can avoid, something we have to acknowledge will be with us so that we can be prepared. But just because 
false teachers will always be with us. It does not mean that they are um, going to get off free. They will, they will certainly be judged. And Peter, in order to drive home this point, offers us several examples. It's a very long sentence in uh, verse 4 and following. Very long sentence, a couple of semicolons. I'm sure Joan loves that. So there is inevitable judgment on false teachers. The first case here is the angels. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. So these would be angels who become demons, right? So angels and demons are not uh, ontologically, like their, their being is not different from one, uh, from one another. They are both angelic beings. One is a fallen and one is not. So we see that God did not spare the angels when they sinned. God does not owe anyone sparing. He doesn't owe anyone salvation. He was perfectly just to leave the angels who fell into uh, sin, darkness. And we might balk at that, but we're just coming up against the, the justice of God. And I think Paul's Romans 9.20 applies to us as well. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Do we understand the holiness of God? Do we understand his justice? Do we understand sin? The angel of the Lord did not die for these angels who denied the Lord. So, they're, they're judged. Their judgment is, um, is fixed. And even, there's a strange verse in 1 Corinthians 6. Jesus says, or Paul says, aren't we also going to judge the angels? Is that fallen angels? Is that uh, unfallen angels? Why would we judge them? Probably fallen angels. We joined with uh, the angel of the Lord will be involved in the pronouncement of judgment on these angels that the Lord did not spare. That's one instance in the heavens, but there's also an instance on earth here, the ancient world or the antediluvian world. So this would be the world before the flood, the world that then was. How did God destroy the ancient world? with the flood. Okay. Let's hold off on the comment about um, sparing Noah. But here we see God did not spare the ancient world. He wiped out everyone except for eight. And we don't know how many there were on, on, on the earth at this time, but I'm pretty sure there were more than ten. Okay. When we come to the flood narrative, just almost as an aside, how should we think of this flood? How should we uh, speak of this flood? What was that? A judgment? You want to expand on that? Well, Noah was the only 
So we should view the flood narrative as a very significant act of judgment on God's part. Right. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. See? Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. So he was a preacher. He's proclaiming the holiness of God, but also the, the mercy of God. And as you're saying here, they're, they're saying, no, we don't, we don't, we don't need that. You're, you're a silly man, Noah. It's like there's going to be a, a worldwide flood. So he wouldn't be uh, looked upon as a prophet, correct? There's a certain terminology for prophet. Right? Uh, uh, I think we can call him a prophet, yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He wouldn't be what we call a literary prophet, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, but he was a prophet. He was someone who was a representative from the Lord who spoke the, the word of God to a people. Yep. So we want to think of the flood narrative as uh, a time of, of terror. I mean, there, there, it was great judgment, it's not just, oh, we got those beautiful, you know, elephants you know, hanging on the top of the ark, and you got the giraffe, it's, his neck has come out of a window, and how did he survive that? You know, Noah's trying to put his, his neck in there. We think of it as just this sweet little, oh, animals in an ark. And, well, there is that side of it, isn't there? Because God does save, he preserves creation. So there is... Uh, the sweetness of salvation seen in the ark, the ark of safety, but that also means that all those who are outside the ark are, as the waters ascend, they're crying out, and they drown, and they die. So we should think of it uh, as terror. Uh, We should speak of it with humility for the grace that we have received, because if there was no Noah... There's no, in a sense, second Adam who is being fruitful, multiplying, fulfilling the earth. And that means there's no seed of the woman. And on and on and on, that means there's no salvation for any of us. There's also Ashen, Sodom, and Gomorrah. In verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, So how did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities? Fire. Notice it is and the surrounding cities. So there was an effect that the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah had that that didn't just stay within Sodom and Gomorrah, it was surrounding cities, and they were influenced by it. And the Lord condemns those. He uh, 
um, sets them ablaze with his judgment. That was a time of great wickedness. How are we to make good use of this narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah? When, uh, when sharing, and this is after you've talked to this person over and over and over again, it can be used as an example when um, having a discussion about uh, homosexuality. That's the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking gay. Yep. Um, so speaking of the the judgment that comes upon those who are living unrepentant homosexual lifestyles. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that these, these kinds of people won't inherit the kingdom of God and fornicators and homosexuals and, uh, and, and on and on? If you are unrepentant, judgment awaits. And one example of that judgment, which pales in comparison to the fiery judgment at the end of the days, one example is Sodom and Gomorrah. I think another way to you know, to talk about it too is uh, your sin, just how I mentioned, it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah, it was the surrounding cities. So there's no private sin per se. Like it's not, it doesn't just affect you, uh, whatever, you know, it right. affects everyone around you. Yeah, nations can be affected by it. And that dispels or disabuses people of that false notion that. You know, one sexuality is exclusively a private matter. Dovetail on, on what William was saying, it also lends itself to disbelief because Lot's wife did not believe, did not do what she was told, and she was turned over to Yes. In Jesus' words, you know, consider Lot's wife. So this should be a sober wake-up call to the reality of judgment for those who do not repent. And remember, even there was an interaction between Abraham and, and God. If I, God, if, you, if, you find, if I find 50, if there are 50 people righteous, will you spare it? Yeah, I'll spare it. Okay, well, how about 45? Yeah, I'll spare it. 40, you know, on and on and on. If there's 10, yeah, I'll spare it. The fact that he doesn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah means that there weren't even ten righteous. It just shows how thoroughly wicked, how pervasive the evil is in the place. So, we have in verses 11 through 22 a description of the present false teachers. And remember, this is not just a, a history lesson. Look how awful the false teachers were in Peter's day. And just consider how wicked they were in Noah's day and in Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and on and on. It's Peter saying they have, this fact has direct relevance to you, first century. And of course, since this is written not just to first century Christians, but to us as well, then we should be considering what false teachers 
how they present and what they, uh, what they do that denies the word of God. They deny the authority of God. It's, it says verse 10, it says they despise authority. I've used this quote before, and um, you might know the, the speaker. Uh, this person uh, comes up and just, just at the start of a worship service says, says this. When we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. Just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Close. So D said Joel Osteen. Very close. His wife, yes. Yeah. And another false teacher calls God the biggest failure. God is the biggest failure because he lost it all. He lost his top-ranking angels. He lost Satan. He lost Adam and Eve. He lost the whole earth. He lost a third of the angels. The biggest loser is God. It's Kenneth Copeland, false teacher. The rest of that verse says, bold and willful, they do not tremble. That's that's significant, just that part. It is. So that also means then that one response of Christians is to tremble? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes. You read Hebrews 12 and the tale of two mountains, the two different kingdoms, and it brings us back to Mount Sinai, and the people of God were trembling. And he he says, how much more ought to be the case for us? We have come to this heavenly kingdom, this much better kingdom. We ought to tremble before the holy, holy, holy God. Isaiah was right to respond the way he did when he was faced with the refulgence and uh, the, the beauty and the holiness, the justice of God when he considered his own sin in light of the light of God. So there ought to be a trembling, but not a trembling that uh, drives you away from God, but a trembling that drives you to God. I think it was Michael Reeves who wrote the book Rejoice and Tremble, which combines this idea of reverence and joy. Uh, he does so very well. There might still be a copy at the book table. If not, it might be in the library. Um, great book. Yeah, bold and willful, they do not tremble as a blasting the glorious one. So the second description is they denounce these glorious ones, the, the angels. Um, now, in Jude, I'm not going to spend much time in it today because I'm preaching on it next week. Uh, in Jude, there's mention of Michael the archangel who, doesn't, who, who knows his place. And he uh, simply says to the devil, 
Uh, he, Michael, the archangel, simply says the devil, Lord, rebuke you when they are disputing over Moses' body. More on that next week. Um, so here, though, Peter is saying uh, angels. The angels, and this would be the unfallen angels, they know their place. Though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So there is this acknowledgement of uh, creaturely order, and even these false teachers have blasphemed the glorious ones. I believe this, this is the, the angels. Some people have understood glorious ones to be the, the church, the, the saints. Um, a case might be made for that, but based on uh, the context here, it does look like it's uh, in reference to angels who are glorious ones. What exactly was going on there? I don't know. Do you just speak ill of angels? I guess, but that's something that requires deeper study. They display animal-like behavior. That's verse 12 there. Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They will also be destroyed in their destruction. To be called an animal is... To be demoted. This is a judgment on the imago. Those who are made in the image of God. Who are not acting like the image of God, but they are acting like beasts. Calvin, he loved to refer to uh, image bearers as beasts when they were not um, living holy lives. And he would say, he would lump himself up in that and say, Hey, we're like beasts if we are um, if we are drunk. He thinks drunkenness is one of the um, clearest signs of uh, beast-like behavior because you're losing self-control, you're losing your uh, your mind. So we are not to be um, beast-like because we're not made to be beasts. We're made to be image bearers. They delight in evil. Verses 13 to 14, suffering wrong as the, as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. There's that, they feast with you. So there's that, uh, pr- probably a, a reference to the Lord's Supper. So they are in the church. They are with the people of God, feasting with people of God. So the, again, there's that subtle presence, that secret presence. They're, some of them are taking the Lord's Supper. They are tasting the heavenly gift, but denying the bread of life. And so these are delighted in evil. Uh, one, uh, one man wrote this. Uh, I guess Christian sensuality or Christian erotica is a, is a thing these days. Christians to- toy with, with sex, I, I suppose, and this person says, the world will know we are Christians by how good we are in the bedroom. The world will know we are Christians by how good we are in the bedroom. That's a new death. I, 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 didn't, know, yeah. I didn't know that existed. Thanks. <laughs> Who said that? A person named Lynn Winters of Cornerstone Church. Yeah. So, you know, I thought Jesus said, the world will know you by the love that you have for one another. 
But you can, you can see how people reason. Well, okay, if, if, if there's the greatest intimacy is found in the bedroom and between man and wife, and there are many exhortations to enjoy your, uh, your, your spouse. The Song of Solomon for crying out loud. These are great books, great verses, and that's where love is. So share, and that, I guess, means you tell people about, about your, uh, your time. Mm. Okay. So there's a delighting in evil. There's a defilement of the marriage bed. Something that Paul says not to do. There's also a division of the brotherhood in verse 13, which I already mentioned, they, while they feast with you. So they are with the church, but they are even denying the unity of the brotherhood. They defile the self. Blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They deceive unsteady souls. These are things we've already looked at in the first uh, verse. And perhaps this is what Jude is speaking of uh, when he says, those who are doubting, have mercy on them and snatch them even out of the fire. They're these unsteady souls. And false teachers are just pushing them over the precipice into hell. Whereas it's a responsibility of Christians to disabuse the, these unsteady souls of the deception. Say, no, 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 that's not what God's word says. Here's what God's word says. I wouldn't say these descriptions that Peter lays out are the only descriptions of false teachers, but we would do well whenever we are... Uh, faced with a teaching perhaps that is foreign to our ears, to line it up with, with what we see here as a description of false teachers. Is there a delighting in evil? Is, is there, does this teaching uh, divide the brotherhood? Maybe it does so, uh, but it's under the guise of maintaining the peace and purity of the church. We just need, again, you just need to know our Bibles. And when we recognize false teaching... We should identify it for what it is. It should be avoided. It should be exposed. This is error. And it should be rebuked. And Peter's point here is all of these past and present false teachers will be judged. They can count on divine judgment. Truth is for all of us today. If we live unrepentant lifestyles, if we are not finding salvation, refuge in Christ alone, in him who is the ark of safety, if we are not finding that salvation, then we will find judgment. But Peter doesn't conclude. uh, Well, I guess you could say in one sense he does since um, he ends the chapter with, the, uh, the proverb, the dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. But throughout this chapter, he also has highlights of God's inevitable rescue, his inevitable deliverance of the godly. So verse 5, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, herald of righteousness, with seven others. So God rescued Noah. How did God rescue Noah? Famous Nathan, do you know how God rescued Noah? In the ark? Yeah. Good job. 
Now, why did God rescue Noah? He was found to be righteous. It does say he was a herald of righteousness. So uh, that means he must be righteous in some sense. I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah, there is a, there's a good sense in which that is correct. Because he wanted to. Okay. The Lord wanted to save Noah, and so he saved Noah. I like that answer. Now, Noah was found righteous. Okay. Liz, you have your hand up? No, oh, I was going to say to preserve a remnant of his people, because if he didn't, then his you know, promise to yep. extend his kingdom would have ended right then and there. Right, he had already made promise in Genesis 3.15, and I'm sure he was gearing up to make some promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and following, so really got to make sure those promises are made. That's to keep that line, okay? He says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What was so awesome about Noah? God's favor. He did believe because the Lord wanted to save him and wanted to keep his promise. Did Noah earn some salvation? Like, Lord, look at me. Look how favorable I am. Look at all these guys over here, they don't want to believe you, but I do. The Lord does not repay us according to our iniquities. Okay, the Lord does not repay us according to our iniquities. He just decides that we're going to be um, safe underneath his arms. Mm-hmm. His arms he's going to count as righteous for Jesus' sake. Okay. So we see even from the beginning, kind of like a, well, not kind of like, it is like this. So in Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. So Noah did find favor with the Lord and he was a herald of righteousness. He was righteous himself, but because of the righteousness of the coming seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, applied retroactively. Remember that word from Teen Group? Applied retroactively? The Lord loved a people. And we know that Noah wasn't just a stand-up guy. He was, he was righteous, and he, he was holy, though his holiness could grow in holiness. If we're talking just his own conduct, and we know that even after he gets out of the ark, that there is some drunkenness, and that's not, that's not good. So he wasn't perfect. The Lord didn't choose Noah because Noah was perfect. He said, yep, you're the man. He chose to have favor on the man. He chose to rescue this man who deserved to be with everyone else in the waters. So God also rescued Lot. Somebody tell the class how God rescued Lot. Okay, so he had this revelation from God through the, this angelic mediation. You need to get out of here. Get out of here right now. Okay? So even that was the hand of, of God bringing Lot out. You want to go there, you drag out. Yes, 
He didn't want to go. He had to be dragged out. Very, that kind of sets me up to my sermon in just a little bit. Irresistible grace. Thank you for that, Rick. Now, there is mention in verse 8 of the man, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. When you read the Genesis account, do you see Lot's righteousness and his plagued spirit on display? You do? Because the people of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, they wanted to have relations with the angels, and Lot was frustrated over this. He, he despised the people for what they were trying to do, and, and his, um, his righteousness was knowing that it was wrong sure. and trying to protect the angels. Yeah, that is true. He, he's trying to be hospitable towards those that he has allowed in, and he knows that uh, the men, old and young, who are going to bar, try to barge down, they are not hospitable, and they, are, they have ill intent. That's true. He also does... Go ahead, Rick. Right. You didn't like that part? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> it's not a good part. So, so here we have, uh, but the scriptures call him righteous. And that he's, he's tormenting his soul day and night, day after day. I want to do the right thing. So there is this um, imperfection, but nevertheless, this righteousness that is imputed to Lot, not because of Lot's awesomeness, but because of God's commitment to rescue the godly. Rescue these people who were ungodly, whom he made godly, whom he set apart. So I have a question, and if I'm down a rack then just let me know. But what about what about his daughters? I don't recall it saying anything about you know them at all, other than that offer. So they died. Yeah, so yeah, they, uh, one of them is, uh, actually gives birth to future enemies of Israel. Yeah, the Midianites. Sadness. So we look at this, uh, these two instances. Okay, God rescued Noah, that's great. God rescued Lot, that's great too. But what about me? Indeed. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So, who are the godly? Those who trust in Christ. Those who do not deny the master who bought them, but those who trust in Christ as the word of God, as the savior of sinners, as the, as the risen Lord, the one who is going to come again. These are the godly. Not to say their lives are perfect. They're not. Like Noah, like Lot, we demonstrate imperfection. We sin every single day. Yet, God justifies the ungodly and makes us godly. These men and women that Peter is writing to 
were experiencing great trials. They were experiencing trials of destructive heresies, but also the, the warp and woof of, of living in a fallen world. They were suffering, and Peter is giving them encouragement. If God knows how to rescue these godly men, certainly he knows how to rescue you. And we could even say that the fullness of that deliverance has come in Christ. And what they received was shadowy. It was a type and a shadow. It was anticipating the substance of salvation that is found in Christ alone. And if you have that salvation from the greatest trial, the greatest um, judgment that awaits all the ungodly, if, if you've been rescued from that, certainly the Lord can deliver you, knows how to deliver you from other similar or uh, lesser trials. So we can say, whatever trials come our way, come what may. And the Lord knows how to rescue me from every one of these. Doesn't mean that, of course, the, that you won't experience the trial. In fact, we see from James that these trials are part of the gift of God. Come from his hand. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And if these trials are used for his glory and your growth, then you can count it a blessing in whatever circumstance you find yourself. And you know ultimately that God is for you. He is your deliverer. We might, though, functionally deny this verse with maybe faithless prayers or with um, pessimistic living. We might deny that the Lord currently reigns. Well, he's, maybe he's too busy. Maybe my, my concerns are are not as weighty as the concerns of that person over there, and so the Lord overlooks my trial. Hogwash. The Lord is omnipresent. The Lord is omniscient. The Lord is omnipotent. He's not taxed by the trial over there. He, he is perfectly able to rescue all the godly of all their trials. That should affect how we approach him. We should approach him with faith. We should approach him in our prayers boldly, coming to the throne of grace, knowing that when we come to him, we receive grace and mercy for, for our trials. Endurance, increase of, of grace, joy in the Holy Spirit, peace of conscience, and, and many other blessings besides. We have ever reason then to be helpful. And uh, as we'll see next week, there is more hope to be had in the inevitable second coming of the Lord. Just before uh, I pray, though, let me remind you of, or basically tell 90% of you who weren't here the, for the first couple minutes, um, I'm not judging you, it's fine, but I want you to hear the <laughs> announcement, okay? So next week, we're looking at Second Peter 3. For the first half hour. In the second half hour, Chuck Williams will be here um, explaining the, uh, the church that he's planting in Florida, a church that the session has decided to support financially, and we want you guys to hear about it. And you can then be in prayer for him, and you can consider if you want to support him financially as well. So he'll spend a half hour, well, he'll spend, I think, 15 minutes explaining the church plant and then also give you guys the time for questions. 
All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our wonderful God, thank you again for your word. We thank you for the comfort, this twofold comfort that we find in this chapter that the ungodly will be judged. And Lord, we can say that vengeance is yours, that judgment ultimately comes from your hand. And so we don't have to try to mete out judgment here in, in some kind of earthly temporary transaction, Lord, but we can entrust ourselves to you, entrust our just pleas to you, O Father. And we thank you at the same time that you know how to rescue the godly. That We deserve, Lord, to be with all the ungodly. We deserve to be in hell forevermore, but you have rescued us from that. We give you eternal thanks, O Lord, and we uh, pray that you would continue to guide us, that you would continue to rescue us and, and comfort us in all of the afflictions that we find ourselves to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.